Friends, it is wonderful to be back with you. I praise the Lord for the, those who have served the last two weeks while our family was on vacation. On this uh, travel that we did, we did not fly, we drove. Uh, but I am reminded of times when uh, I fly, occasionally the pilot would come on and uh, give warnings to, uh, to the passengers um, to let them know that they will be going through some times of turbulences. Have you been on those announcements? Uh, and the pilot would say, buckle up. Uh, and if anyone is seating, uh, is, is, is walking, uh, or still in the, in the restroom, they are encouraged to get back quickly to their seats. Why? Because it's going to be bumpy. It's going to be a little dangerous if you are not careful. And if you don't have your seatbelt on, you get, might get hurt. Well, friends, in some ways, the passage of Scripture that we are entering as we are back into the book of Isaiah uh, deserves this warning that I want to give to you, that it will be turbulent. And therefore, I will ask you to put on your seatbelts. Now, we don't have seatbelts in the pews here. That's not the seatbelts I'm talking about. The seatbelts I'm talking about are those of our attention and of our conclusions. The passage we're starting on in the book of Isaiah today, in the second section of the book of Isaiah, uh, is a passage that uh, will have many oracles of judgment. And if we're not careful, these judgments or these oracles might, might make us bump off with our attention span or might lead us to the wrong conclusion. If, if this is the kind of God who acts this way, I want to have nothing to do with him, you might say. Well, hold on. Don't yet get to that conclusion. There's some wonderful things this passage and the section of passages that we are going through will teach us about the character of God. There's some wonderful lessons this passage will teach us about how we, as God's people, have reasons to trust in God. Therefore, I'm just giving you this caution as we are beginning our second section in the book of Isaiah, particularly chapters 13 to 27. Uh, we will be going through some bumpy times. But uh, hold on, hang on. There's some wonderful things the Lord wants to teach us through this, passage, through this section of Isaiah. Now, we will not cover all 14 chapters today. There will be a number of sermons that will cover these. Uh, but we will cover chapters 13, verse 1, through 14, verse 27. So I encourage you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 13. We'll be reading from verse 1 to chapter 14, verse 27. For those of you who are not used to uh, opening God's Word or, or hearing sermons from God's Word, in, our, in this congregation we like to go through books at a time, books of the Bible at a time, and we are currently going through the book of Isaiah. We finished, before my vacation, we finished the first section of it, the first 12 chapters, and we are beginning a new section now. Here's the Word of the Lord for us this morning. The Oracle Concerning Babylon which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host. 
for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look angst at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant, and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold, and mankind than the gold of a fear. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And like a hunted gazelle, or like a sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people, and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through, and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes, Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Behold, I am stirring up the meads against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there, nor shepherds will make their flocks lie down there, but wild animals will lie down there, and their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell, and their wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant palaces. Its time is close at hand. And its day will not be prolonged. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob. And will again choose Israel. And will set them in their own land. And sojourners will join them. And will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased. The insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows. 
that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution, the whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you. The cedars of Lebanon saying, Since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you, all who are leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who are kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, You too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought, low, is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps, maggots, are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of, of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory each in his own tomb. But you are cast out, away from your grave, like a loathed branch, clothed with a slain, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers never more be named. Prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord, and will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares the Lord, and I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts has sworn. As I have planned, so shall it be. And I have purposed, and as I have purposed, so it shall stand, that I break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you join me in prayer, asking the Lord to bless the preaching of his word for our hearts? Lord, we're privileged to hear from you. What a privilege to hear your revelation for us. Father, we recognize today as we have heard this word that we cannot understand it apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would help us to understand your word and by your spirit we pray that you would open our hearts 
understand your character, to understand your works and your purposes for us. We pray that you would humble us so that you may comfort us. We pray that you would bring us low so that we might find in you the one ultimate source of our comfort and joy. We pray that you would speak to our hearts through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So far in the book of Isaiah, dear friends, we have seen the Lord engage his people and bring them to recognize their status before the Lord. They thought, many of them, that they were fine. They felt secure in what they were doing in their relationship with God Almighty. But God sends the prophet Isaiah and gives them five oracles in the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah to tell them that they are not what they thought they are. And then in chapter 6, Isaiah sees a vision of God. And not only does he see a vision of God, he gets a mission from the Lord to go and speak a message that will be rejected by the people. And Isaiah says, Lord, how long will I have to do that mission? And the Lord says, until I clear up the land and I destroy everything in the land. And then in chapter 7, we see the Lord give, give Isaiah a message to go and speak to Ahaz, who was planning to rely on the king of Assyria to get them out of the trouble that they were in from two other neighboring nations. And in Isaiah 7 through 12, God has sent the prophet Isaiah to tell his people, do not rely on the other nations. Don't rely on yourself. Don't trust on what you can do, on your strategies. Rely on me. I am the one who can protect you. Chapters 13 to 27, we see a picture of God speaking about the nations. We see here 10 oracles in chapters 13 to 23 in particular, and then we see another oracle in chapter 24 for the whole earth. But in chapter 13 and 14, we see an oracle against Babylon and Assyria. In chapter 14, at the end of 14, we see an oracle against Philistia. In chapter 16, uh, 15 and 16, we see an oracle against Moab. In chapter 17, we see an oracle against Damascus. In chapter 18, we see an oracle against Cush. In chapter 19, we see an oracle against Egypt. In chapter 20, we see another oracle against Egypt and Cush again. In chapter 21, we see another oracle again against Babylon. In chapter 22, the oracle is targeted now towards Jerusalem. And then in chapter 23, against Tyre and Sidon, ten oracles of judgment. And you may be wondering, and we will be going through all of them? Yeah, we will. It is God's word. But we won't go through all of them in one, so it's not going to be a very, 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 very long sermon. But in chapter 24, after these specific ten judgments for specific lands, specific locations, God in chapter 24 says, I have a judgment against the whole earth. Now before, before we get to, to understand what's going on in this, in this section, the ten oracles are like previews of what God will bring upon the whole earth. Friends, if it's going to be painful to go just to ten oracles of judgment over ten nations, imagine the fact that God is doing all that to prepare the whole earth to understand that he will judge not just ten nations, 
He will judge the entirety of the earth. But after chapter 24, there's a glimmer of hope. If we keep reading in chapter 25 and 26 and 27, we are told that God's judgment is not the last word. God will rebuild his people and God will provide a means for their redemption. And he will bring people from all the nations of the earth, including the nations that he will judge. He will bring people from all of them to join his people. As we go through this section of Isaiah, the overall segment, the overall message of chapters 20, uh, 13 to 27 is that God is sovereign over the nations. God determines what these nations will go through. God has the destiny of the nations in his hands. And he will bring them to shame. He'll bring them to emptiness. Even the greatest of nations, because of their arrogance and because of their wicked ways, as we will work through these oracles of judgment, here's a historical context that will help us make sense more about this passage. Each of these ten oracles, each of these nations, their, their names are included here, not haphazardously. Uh, to most of us, these names may not mean much. But if you were living in Judah at the time when this was written, you would recognize every one of those names. Every one of those nations would have a particular significance to you as a, as a person in Judah. Here's why. Because every one of those nations were either a lure for Israel to depend upon them, or they were a threat. Besides Babylon and Assyria, all the other nations mentioned were neighboring lands around Israel and Judah. They either enticed Israel to fall into idolatry, or they threatened Israel's peace and security. These oracles of judgments were to be given not to the nations. These messages of judgment were not sent to Assyria. They were not sent to Babylon. They were sent to God's people about these nations. Why? So they would know that they have nothing to fear. And they would know they should have nothing to trust in them. Because God holds their destinies in his hands. God's people needed to hear that God will judge severely the very nations which lured or threatened God's people. Whether these nations would be a lure or a threat, God will judge them and bring them low. As we look at, uh, at the first of these oracles, the oracle against Babylon and Assyria, I'd like for us to consider four truths from this passage. If you like taking notes, four truths that God reveals through the first oracle of judgment uh, against Babylon and Assyria. Here's the first truth. God will turn human glory into ashes. God will turn human glory into ashes. Uh, the first oracle of judgment in this section is against Babylon. We see this explicitly in, in chapter 13, verse 1. By the way, we encourage you to open your, your Bibles, keep it open, and follow along. In 13.1, the oracle concerning Babylon. Nothing can be more clear about that. We also see Babylon explicitly mentioned in verse 17 in chapter 13. Uh, Behold, I'm stirring up the Medes against them. And then again in chapter 13, verse 19, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, 
will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. Why would this list of oracles start with Babylon? After all, when Isaiah wrote this book, the big threat wasn't Babylon, it was Assyria. Why would this list of oracles start with Babylon? Well, remember again, Isaiah 6, God said to Isaiah that he will wipe out Judah, that he will wipe out his people. But in chapter 7, God told Ahaz through Isaiah, don't worry about Assyria because they won't destroy you. So how do you put those, the messages of those two chapters together? I'll destroy you, but Assyria won't be the one who's going to destroy you. If you keep reading the book of Isaiah, you get to chapter 39, we find out who is going to be the instrument that God will use against Judah to wipe Judah out. It won't be Assyria. It'll be Babylon. This is one of the reasons why Babylon appears first here in this list of oracles, even before their conquer, even before they come to conquer Judah, God tells his people, I will judge them. They are in my hands. God declares that the very nation that he will use against Judah to chastise his people, that very nation which will seem invincible, God will bring down in his own time. And God says in verse 17, Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them. Friends, that's exactly what happened. After the Babylonian Empire rose to glory and power and fame, it was the Medes that God used to bring them down, as the book of Daniel tells us. Friends, this predictive prophecy about the destiny of Babylon should give us awe and reverence towards God. God is able to determine the rise of a kingdom, and its fall. We think that nations rise and fall because of man's power or strategy or because of politics or because of, of circumstances. The Bible tells us that behind humor planning, behind the strategy that, that people make, there's actually a God who sets the destinies of entire kingdoms. Friends, the God we read in the Bible is sovereign over the nations. That's why he can do with them as he pleases. Notice how Babylon is described in verse 19. And Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the splendor and the pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. Friends, there's no greater contrast than this one. The pomp, the glory, the splendor of the greatest nation of, of, of antiquity the kingdom of Babylon, and the opposite of that is the ashes of Sodom and Gomorrah. God says, I will make that happen. I will take a nation that will be so glorious and splendorous in the, in the eyes of, of humanity, of mankind, and I will bring them to ashes, even though, even though Babylon will experience this um, Human glory, we are taught here that human glory, nationalistic splendor and pomp cannot protect a nation from being humbled by God. This is not just about Babylon. This is about the power of God to take the greatest of nations and to bring them to the lowest of emptiness and shame and destruction. This should give us chills, my dear friends, especially as we might think or be lured to pursue 
the glories of this earth. No matter how much success, no matter how many accomplishments, no matter how much power, recognition, influence we might acquire, God is able to bring down and replace all of that with shame, with emptiness, with ruin, if we seek those things in the place of God. God will not let His glory be marred by the pursuits of mankind for their own glory. God initially has created mankind and bestowed it with His glory, but humanity has chosen to, to depart, to forsake, to turn the back against the glory of God on humanity and forsake their own self-centered ways, God will bring the glory of humanity to ruin so that He can show what His glory is like. In our text, the destruction of Babylon is presented in a very special way as a day of the Lord. Notice verse 6, wail. For the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty will come. Then again in verse 9, behold, the day of the Lord comes. Did you hear that phrase, the day of the Lord? It appears 25 times in the Bible. It's a significant phrase. It's not to be taken lightly. In this passage, Isaiah uses this concept of the day of the Lord and describes it in some very interesting ways that will help us understand what this day is about. The way it's described here in our passage, it seems to describe as God's vengeance and justice and, 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 and wrath not just against Babylon, but against the whole earth. Notice in verse 2 through 5 that this, we get a picture here. And by the way, in this passage, the day of the Lord is presented through a number of pictures. We're in the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah has a number of, of poetic language. Actually, quite a, bit, a, quite a large chunk, chunk of the book is poetic language. So we must interpret it as poetry. Um, but here in, in the first part of this description of the day of the Lord, we see a picture of a battlefield. And God is calling out the nations for battle. Who's gathering them? The Lord. The Lord is gathering them for, look at verse 4. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. The day of the Lord will be a day of destruction. That's what this imagery tells us. God will allow the destructive power of sin to go unbridled as God brings these nations for battle together. Notice it is the armies of these nations that will cause the destruction. All God has to do is let them come, call them to come. You might wonder, why would God do that? Why would God set up a battlefield? Well, the answer is in verse 11. God says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. The day of the Lord, dear friends, is a day of destruction for those who have continued in their sin and for those who have continued in their arrogance. God will bring a day when he will put an end to all of that. Friend, the God of the universe will not let evil, wickedness, and arrogance go unpunished. When we see so much injustice, when we see evil rising around us. Friends, we've been reminded of that even a few 
a few days ago here in our own city, in, in uh, Charlottesville, that evil continues to go in the, into the fabric of this nation. When evil continues to rise, and we can see evidence of that as we go even beyond our own country, when evil continues to rise, we think that if we can put more security in our system, if we can, if we can put more patrol around us, or if we can educate people, if we can give them a better future, we will solve the evil of the, of the world. Friends, we won't. We've never been so educated and so rich as the last hundred years as, as in, in, in various nations, of, especially in the West. And yet we have seen some of the greatest wars, World War I, World War II. We see violence. It doesn't, it doesn't get better with more security. It doesn't get better with more education. We are not able to put a stop to all of this. But God says a day will come when he will. He's bringing the day of the Lord to put an end to all wickedness, to all evil, to all injustice. While all of us want to see that happen, the text tells us that God will put an end not only to evil and wickedness, but also to those who are arrogant in their ways. We may feel like we are not those who are contributing to the evil of the world. We're not those who cause the injustice. If anything, we might pat ourselves on the back and say, look, I am grieved by this injustice. I am I'm not a, of the evil ones. Oh, you might think of that. But what about the arrogance in your heart? What about those, those moments in the day, in the week, when the Lord, through his spirit and through his word, or through other believers, may nudge you to choose the path of righteousness? And you would say to yourself, oh, I know better than that. Oh, I know where that leads to boring. Real pleasure, real satisfaction is in what I am able to bring myself. The arrogance of the heart that knows that you can set your plans and that your plans would be better than God's ways for your life. Friends, the day of the Lord will will address not only the, the, the evil and the injustice that we see worldwide, he will address the arrogance of the heart that nobody may see but you and the Lord. Be aware of that. If you're not a Christian, I wonder if you know how your sin can be dealt with. The day of the Lord says it will be a day when God will punish sinners. Friends, the bad news for all of us is that all of us are born sinners. All of us, every one of us is born sinner. The Bible tells us that we don't need to sin to become a sinner. The Bible tells us that we sin because we are sinners. We are born with an identity, with a nature corrupted by sin. And unless we have that sin dealt with, we will face the day of the Lord being the target of the anger and the wrath of God against all sin and evil. Friend, I wonder if you know how your sin can be dealt with. The Bible tells us that God sent his son Jesus, born of a, of a human flesh like us, taking on human nature like us, lived a life perfect with no sin, and yet was crucified, condemned and crucified. And was crucified on a cross as a symbol that he was cursed by God, not because he deserved the curse, but because he took upon himself the curse of the penalty and the penalty of our sins. Three days later, 
God raised Jesus from the dead, proving that indeed the penalty and the payment that Jesus made for the sins of all those who would repent and trust in Christ, that payment was fully made. And now we stand here declaring to you and to all the world that anyone who would repent of their sin, anyone who would trust in Christ for their salvation, will have their sin dealt with, cleansed, paid for, broken. Oh, dear friends, don't wait for the day of the Lord to, in, to meet you without having your sin dealt with. If you have not repented of your sin, if you have not trusted in Christ, I plead with you today, do it today. As, as you're hearing these words, ask God to save you. Trust in Christ for your salvation. If you'd like to know more about that, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. Don't delay in dealing with your sinfulness. Don't let the day of the Lord find you in with your sin unresolved. The day of the Lord also, tells, Isaiah tells us, the day of the Lord will be cosmic in its reach. In verse 10, we see this, um, this picture of the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Friends, don't think here that these verses are talking merely about an eclipse that we will see tomorrow. Don't think that this is talking about falling stars alone. The point of this passage, uh, there's a number of truths in this passage, but the point, one of them is that the cosmic elements like the stars, the sun, and the moon are withdrawing their benefits from the sinners of the world. The entire earth will be in darkness. The entire earth will be in darkness. The, the entire cosmos will be, effect, will be affected by this day of the Lord, but also the, 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 the entire earth will be affected by it. Therefore, verse 13 says, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place. The entire creation will be affected by the wrath of God against all sin. The ending of the description of the day of the Lord picks up the imagery of the battlefield. Remember, that's how it started, and now it, towards the end, we pick up on the battlefield again. Remember in verse 2, the Lord was the one who mustered people for battle. In verse 3, the Lord calls them my proudly exalting ones. That's an interesting way. This is how the people come for battle. Proudly exalting ones. They come confident that they will win the battle. And the aftermath of the battle is in verse 14. Each will flee to his own land. And notice, they will scatter. Like a hunted gazelle and like a sheep with none to gather them. I love this picture. I love how one, one of the commentators, Alec Motier, um, describes this picture. He says, finding the Lord as their enemy and losing him as their shepherd, humankind is indeed helpless and hopeless with everything to flee from and nowhere to flee to. They gathered with exultant arrogance, but now all they can think to do is head home. If we read verse 15 and 16, we recognize that those who scatter from the battlefield will still not save their lives because they will be killed in their scatter. And more so, if that is not enough, in verse 16, we see one of the most merciless pictures in the Bible. Families, homes, utterly destroyed. Children, wives, utterly destroyed. These warriors who flee for their lives, to save their lives, who flee the battlefield, can't save themselves, and even that to which, we, to which they flee to, they find already destroyed. The picture here is that destruction will be totally inevitable on the day of the Lord. No one, 
absolutely no one will be able to escape it. And there'll be no mercy on that day. Oh, friends, the day of the Lord is described as a battlefield that started off with great arrogance and optimism of winning and yet ended in utter destruction. Oh, friends, this tells us, the day of the Lord, this passage tells us about the day of the Lord that humanity cannot conquer. The day of the Lord will show that humanity can protect itself. In the desire to win, we will destroy ourselves. In the desire to gain, we will lose everything. In the desire to show off our arrogance, our power, what we can be, we will only destroy ourselves. Humanity cannot escape the universal self-destruction, self-destruction which is caused in us by our own rebellion. But friends, we don't need to wait till the last day to hear about this corruption of humanity. Why is it that couples who are left to their own sinful, selfish desires end up destroying their marriages? Why is it that someone who is sold out for pursuing their career ends up destroying his marriage for the sake of accomplishing more? Why is it that some people's cravings for attention leads them to choose the wrong crowd and come under the wrong influence, which eventually has a power to wreck their lives? Imagine all that happening at a universal scale. Now, here's how the, Lord of the, Lo- uh, the day of the Lord relates to Babylon. You might wonder, we took this longer time to describe the day of the Lord because it's such an important concept in the Bible. Why does Isaiah bring this cosmic day of the Lord and relate it to Babylon? Here's why. The destruction of Babylon is presented in the book of Isaiah as a dress rehearsal of the final day of the Lord. God wants his people to know that he will destroy Babylon, the greatest of the nations. And he wants them to know, to take this lesson. Listen, what you will see in the destruction of Babylon is a full dress rehearsal of what's going to come in the final day. Take this seriously. God has planned a day of divine vindication of all that is sinful, all that is oppressive, all that is corrupt, all that is arrogant and prideful. If God did it with Babylon, he will do it again with the entire earth. That's point one. Here's point two. The rest of the points will go a little quicker. For those who wonder, will we get out of here? Here's why God will do it to Babylon. Not only to show that it's a dress rehearsal of the final day of the Lord, he will do it because he will have compassion on his people. This is the second point of the sermon. God will have compassion on his people. Isaiah 14, 1 and 2 tells us that God will act in judgment against Babylon for the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again will choose Israel. Friends, God will act in judgment against the nations because he has compassion for his chosen ones, for his people. When we speak about God's wrath against wickedness and evil, against arrogance and pride, we must remember that he will do it so that he will act with purposes of restoring his own people. That's why the message of God's judgment against the nations is not hopeless. God's judgment against the nations is not the last word that God has. Notice 
It's not merely Israel that will return to his place of rest. In chapter 14, verse 1, God says, sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And then God will reverse the roles. The, those who were held captive will be not only freed, but will be reversing their roles with the captors. The ones who were ruled will be ruling. Now, don't think here militaristic ruling. The kingdom that God will give to his people will not be a kingdom of war or of physical swords. It will be a kingdom of peace. The reign of the king that God will give to his people will reign and will invite the nations to come in and to be submitted to, God, to God's people and to God through the gospel of God's peace. In chapter 14, we are told that God's judgment is carried out against Babylon for this purpose. God will have compassion on his people. Friend, remember that the God who promised to judge the nations and the entire world is still the God who has compassion on his people. His people find in God a place of refuge and healing. God promises to deal with the enemies of his people. God promises to wipe them out entirely. And God's people will be in a place, will be in a time, where they will be no more enemies to be afraid of. Oh friend, if you want to receive the compassion of God, turn to him and belong to his people. May I say, there is no compassion of God outside of the people of God who belong to God through Jesus Christ. God shows us now his mercy by inviting us to belong to his people. When we belong to God, we belong to his people. There's no sense of belonging merely to God, but not to his people. God will have compassion on his people. But more so, point number three, God will give his people a song of victory. God will give his people a song of victory. In chapter 14, starting with verse 3, we are told that God places in the mouths of his people a song, a taunt, a taunt. A taunt could be a, a song uh, of mockery, or it could be a proverb or a parable. It's unclear here whether this is a parable, a proverb, or a song of of, of mockery. But at the very least, we know one thing about the song. It is a song of victory that God's people now get to sing. Guess against who? Or guess towards who? Guess who's the audience uh, who's listening to this song? It's the king of Babylon. The very king who epitomized power, strength, influence. The one who was in charge, if you will, of of humanly speaking, of, of, the, of the strategy of the Babylonian Empire, to this king, God's people, who have been redeemed by God, are now able to sing a song. And it's a song of victory. Um, this song tells four truths about what God is doing with his people and what God is doing with all people. God is able to stop the unstoppable. God is able to stop the unstoppable. This is, if you're taking notes, this is sub-point number one under point three. 
verse 4 through 6, how the oppressor has seized, the insolent fury seized. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers that struck the people in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. Finally, what the whole earth was not able to overcome, God now has broken. All the nations were not able to oppose and, and stand this king. But now they are at peace and at rest. Why? Because God broke the one whom the nations were not able to break. A second truth we see in this, in this song is that death, as God's instrument, puts an end to all our earthly glory. Death puts an end to all our earthly glory. In verses 9 through 11 in this song, we see the place of death personified. It's, it's as if the, the Sheol rises up, speaks, and comes to greet the new king who's coming back or coming to, to the grave. And the Sheol is raising the other kings of the earth. And the other kings of the earth say, your pomp is brought down to Sheol. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. Now imagine again the contrast. Imagine the splendor of the greatest empire. And imagine not just the, the splendor of Babylon. Imagine you are in the White House of Babylon. Imagine what's going on at the highest level of Babylon, in, in the very home of the king of Babylon. When he dies, instead of all that, here's what he gets. Maggots and worms. How would you like to go to bed being covered in those? Do you see the contrast here? Do you see the, almost a mockery? But the point is that death, and by the way, this is not just for the king of Babylon. This is for all of us. Death puts an end to all human glory. Students, you're starting a new, a new year on, on the campus of, of UT. You're thinking if you're just going to strive hard enough, if you're going to be a, the best student you can be, if, you could, if you're going to do the best you can so you can build up a career, so you can get a good job, so you can get into a good position in life, and you can, you can get all that you want, all that this world wants. Friends, you may be able to get that. The Lord may be able to give me, the Lord might give you the, the wisdom to get you to ex- accomplish those things. But here's what we ought to know. Death will be the end of all human glory. All of us will go, unless the Lord comes and takes us home, all of us, all of us will hit the grave. All of us will be covered by maggots and worms. And you know, the maggots and the worms don't treat kings differently than the beggars. It's going to be all the same. Keep that in mind as you pursue the glory of this earth. A third point that we see in this, in this, in this song of, 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 of victory, death, as God's instrument, puts an end to all our self-centered aspirations and dreams. It's not only that death puts an end to our, our earthly glory, death also brings our self-centered aspirations and dreams to a halt. Verses 12 to 14, the parable of the song reveals what this king aspired to. In verse 12, the, the, we see language that seems to indicate that he has achieved heavenly status. Some commentators think that, that this is talking about Satan falling out of heaven. 
I'm not convinced that's what's going on here because the very next line speaks about the king actually falling down and being in the grave. It's the same person. Um, however, we must recognize what he aimed in his heart. Verse 13, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And God's response to all this is in verse 15, but you are brought down to Sheol. The aspirations of this king to think that he can take the place of God to think that he can live his life taking God's place is all foolish. The point of this illustration is not just about the king of Babylon. The spirit of the king of Babylon, my dear friends, is in all of us. The essence of human pride, said one commentator, the essence of human pride is self-deification. We really want to take God's place. in the small decisions of life and in the big decisions of life. We would rather want God out. We would rather want it our way, not God's way. We'd rather want to have this authority picture that the Bible speaks of, of our Creator. We would rather have that out. Well, dear friends, don't think that this is, these inclinations are just in the king of Babylon. These inclinations are in every one of us. The final touch God gives to this king is not only that God stops the unstoppable or that God puts an end to his earthly glory or that God puts an end to his self-centered aspirations of being like God, being in the place of God. The last touch God gives to this king is that the end is marred by shame and disgrace. In verses 18 and 20, the burial of this king is stripped off of any honor that is due to a royal official. In verses 20 and 21, the offspring of this king is cut off so that his line of kingship will come to an end. God will not merely bring this king to an end. He will put an end to his royal line so that his kingship and reign will not continue beyond him. Friends, do you remember that this was a problem with Judah? When the, when, when the, the royal dynasty was, at, at, was threatened... And God says the way he will restore his people is by giving them a new successor. The branch that will come from the stump of Jesse. God is able to bring a new successor even to a royal line that has perished. Here, God is perishing the royal line of the kingdom of Babylon to tell us that kind of reign will have no more future. But this end is not just an end. It's a, a shameful end, a disgraceful end. He will not be able even to have the, the, the honoring burial rites that he deserved. Finally, this song, this parable ends with the intervention of God that says in verse 22, I will rise up against them, declares the Lord. I will cut them off. And notice what, what God will cut off, not just their lives. Cut off the name, the remnant, the descendants, and the posterity. Oh, friends, this parable is not spoken merely against the king of Babylon. This parable is not spoken merely by God. This parable and this song is put on the mouths of God's people. That's the beautiful part about the song. It's not merely that God sings this song from heaven. 
It's that God's people will sing the song of victory. They will be the ones who will sing these truths over, over the enemies of God's people. That should give us reasons to, to look forward to God to give us that song of victory. They will declare these truths. They will be spoken by God's people. But friends, they, those who will speak these truths, only they who will have experienced God's rest and redemption. After God has redeemed them, it is after that that God will give them the song. In other words, these truths are spoken only by those who have experienced God's redemption. If you want to be able to sing the song, if you want to be one of those who sing the song, oh dear friends, come to the Lord. He can give you the rest you need. He can break the chain that you have been enslaved to. And when he, breaks that, that when he breaks that reality of bondage in your life, when he gives you rest, and Jesus said it himself, come to me and I will give you rest. He not only will give you rest, he will put the song of victory in your mouth so you can sing it, so you can go through the experiences of life knowing that the king of Babylon, whoever he is and however manifestations it still goes on today, that king has his line cut off because God himself has cut it off. Finally, dear friends, now before we go find, there's one application I want to give. Speak this parable to yourself. Sing the song to yourself. When you feel, when you feel lured or tempted by the, by the glories of this earth, when you're not certain, is God worth following? Sing the song. Anything else that you would pursue, anything else you would be tempted to, to rely on, to trust on, sing this song. Sing these four truths to yourself so that God would enable you to trust the Lord entirely in every circumstance of your life. God has given this parable to his people so they could use it to encourage them as they wait for the Lord. Remember, the Lord gives this song to them before Babylon even conquered them. In other words, this song is given in preparation to prepare God's people for when the time will come. Lastly, finally, last, last point of this, of this sermon, God gives evidence of his reliability. God gives evidence of his reliability. The last part of the passage we read in chapter 14, verse 24 to 27, we finally get to Assyria. We finally get to Assyria. Remember, Assyria is the immediate threat here. And the point here in, this, in, this, in God dealing with Assyria now is to tell them that these oracles of judgment that God gives against distant nations like Babylon, which was still in the distant future, is true. Now, how would God tell them that they can rely and believe the oracle against Babylon? by telling them and showing them that he will wipe out Assyria, which was right before their eyes. In other words, God speaks against Assyria to tell them and drill down in their hearts the truth in verse 24. As I have planned, so it shall be. As I have purposed, so it shall stand. Verse 27 ends with another challenge, the same message. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? 
Oh, dear friends, God had made promises about the destruction of Babylon. God made promises about the, about the, the fierce, dreadful day of the Lord that will come against the entire earth. How can we believe it? Why should we believe it? God says, here's the evidence. I will destroy Assyria in your lifetime. You will see it destroyed. Let that be an encouragement that no king, no kingdom can oppose my plans. And none of my plans can be opposed. What I purpose, I will accomplish. Look around you, God would say. Look at Assyria. And friends, we stand now thousands of years, 2,800 years after all these declarations, and we see God not only wiped out Assyria, God, 200 years later, did wipe out Babylon as well. God gives us evidence to believe that what he says he will carry out. What makes you think that you are greater than the king of Babylon? What makes you think that you are greater than the kingdom of Babylon? Friends, what would make us think that this nation is somehow more glorious than Babylon? God can bring down any person. God can bring down any nation who continues to oppose God, who continues to live in arrogance against God. Why will God act this way against Babylon and Assyria? Because God will have compassion for his people. Four truths we have seen in this passage. God will turn human glory into ashes. God will have compassion upon his people. God will give his people a song of victory. And God gives evidence of his reliability. May we trust in him. May we run to God as to a place of refuge. May God be the fortress to whom we run for safety, for security, for fulfillment, for satisfaction. We'll sing a song in just a moment. Mighty fortress is our God. Let's sing that with hearts ready to trust in the Lord, that he alone is the one worthy of being pursued with all our hearts, with all our trusts. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you indeed are a God who keeps all the nations in your hand. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would humble us by the experiences we read in your word of what you have done to kingdoms like Babylon and Assyria. Lord, help us to take your word fully worthy, fully reliable, fully trustworthy. And may we indeed, O oh Lord, humble ourselves and seek you and rely on you and trust in you. May you be glorified in us. In the name of Christ we pray.